Well, the early church would greet one another on Easter Sunday morning with these words, He is risen. And that's the right response. So we're going to try it one more time. We're going to have you all say, he is risen indeed. All right? He is risen. He is risen Amen. What a wonderful greeting. What an exciting theme tonight. I mean, how can you get around it? That Jesus Christ is alive and well on planet Earth. And he's here right now with us. And he's here to meet our needs. You know, I walked in this morning. Immediately, somebody walked up and said, just found out my sister has a brain tumor. Another person walked up, immediately confronted with people with great needs in their lives. And I'm sure that you're here today and there are needs in your life as well. I'm going to have a stand as we go to the Lord in prayer. We want to continue to bring these needs before God. I love the fact that we can lay our burdens down. We can bring our, our challenges, our difficulties, uh, the pain, the suffering, the sorrow, the sicknesses, uh, all of these challenges that are before us. And we can just say, Lord, I'm going to give them to you today. I'm going to just leave them with you to begin to work in these situations. How many here say, you know, there are things in my life I want to lay at the feet of Jesus this morning. Just going to leave them there. Burdens, decisions. Uh, I need maybe a healing in my body. Maybe I need finances. I need wisdom in my business. Whatever the issue is, we can leave them at the feet of Jesus. So Father, we come to you this morning with gratitude. I know that you are the great physician. I pray right now, even this day, Father, you would reach out and touch people who are afflicted in body, that you'd bring health and healing into their bodies, Lord. You'd bring wisdom into our lives. You'd help us in our relationships. You'd help us with our finances. You'd help us in so many spheres of our lives as we lay these deep concerns down to you. Guide us, direct us, provide for us. Meet the needs, I pray, Jesus, that you would be exalted in our midst and that we would be strengthened in our faith. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. How many recognize that COVID has literally changed our lives? Isn't that true? And you know, I was just reading in the paper yesterday that COVID is actually on the increase. Even in Alberta, there were 1,100 new cases reported on Friday. Isn't that, that's a lot. And so it just seems like, you know, just when we think it's going to diminish, it doesn't, you know, and I think it's created a tremendous weariness. I think these limitations and restrictions also make us realize our human mortality. In other words, that life is fragile. And every day we hear of people passing away, you know, and there's just this constant report. And I pray that we'll never get so indifferent to people who are slipping out into eternity. And then I think of all the defining moments in our life. Certainly COVID has been one, but there was an even greater defining moment, and we're celebrating it today, and that's Easter Sunday. Easter changed our planet forever. The death and, above all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ not only changed lives 2,000 years ago, but I want to declare the good news today, it's still changing lives and it's changing lives even now. It's changing in the moment. It's changing today. And I believe that today, when we understand its power, when we understand its implication for our lives, it can change us. We could have a new defined future. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. So this is an important element of the church. This is the basis of Christianity. It's, bed, it's embedded on this historical fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And if we were to travel back 
to the crucifixion event, it was certainly a defining moment that changed everything for the early disciples, not just in their theological understanding, in which they now understood that their sins were forgiven through Christ's sacrificial and substitutionary death. But I want to just point out to you, it initially caused them much confusion and devastation. And I think we need to understand that. And I believe that God allows us to see that because you and I struggle with some of the things they struggle with. There was a lot of skepticism. There was a lot of doubt in their minds. Even when they saw Jesus appear to them, they were still struggling. They had seen him dead. It was so hard for their minds to somehow register he was now alive. And we're going to look at that in a few minutes. It seemed so unexpected. But then they discovered that Jesus had conquered death. And it ultimately changed the trajectory of their entire future. And my prayer to you this morning, for you this morning, and I had our men in my prayer team praying that literally today would be a changing of the trajectory of your future. Anybody up for, God, I believe you want to do something in my life that will change my future in a positive way. And that's what we want to look at today. I can also say that other events in people's lives are transforming. Loss of a spouse, the death of a child, a life-changing accident, war, famines, pestilence can be added to that list of altering moments that change the future trajectory and direction of our lives. What we can learn from these experiences, that's the issue. What did the disciples learn? What can we learn? Can we move past despair and confusion? Can we begin to embrace the joy of the moment And then, as I've already mentioned, the implications of this resurrection. So what kind of lessons does God want to try to initiate in our thinking this morning? And so historically, after times of incredible evil, and, and you can study this, people often go back to life as if nothing ever happened. Now, I want you to think back in the day when Jesus had risen from the dead. You know, many people's lives were totally altered. I would say the landscape was altered, but you know how many Jewish people rejected that idea, went back to living life as if nothing had happened? And it's true, we read of that. And it took a lot to get get through to some of these individuals. And then I think back, uh, you know, even in COVID now, we're in the middle of it, it's affecting our lives, but you know, I, I know that once this is all done and there's a sense that this pestilence has gone by the wayside, what's, what's the automatic default switch? go back to whatever was before and pick up where we left off. And yet, do you think that God really wants us to do that? Do you think God is allowing things to happen in our world so that he can maybe teach us, instruct us, guide us, and possibly alter our future in such a way, in a positive way, that we could learn from that experience and grow as a person? You know, it's uh, been interesting. I've been listening to a series of lectures on why evil exists. Isn't that a great topic? But no, it's interesting. It's been very fascinating, and it's like 36 half-hour lectures. I'm almost done. And we, this what the lecturer has done, the university professor, started at the beginning of human history. He's taken different religious perspectives, and then he's kind of guided us through different authors, writers, thinkers, philosophers, theologians, brought all those people through. Now, as I'm nearing the end, we're in World War II. It's come to the end of World War II, and people are trying to make sense 
of that terrible thing called the Holocaust. You know, not only were six million people destroyed, but there was another six million people destroyed as well. Twelve million people. And then if you think to, you know, Stalin's purge or Mao Zedong's purge, I mean, on and on it goes. The 20th century was one of the vilest and most desperate centuries that mankind has ever lived. It was such a proliferation of evil like never before. And so uh, people have tried to understand it, speak to it, raise issues about it. And one such writer was uh, a French uh, journalist by the name of Albert Camus, and a very humanistic, atheistic person. Not that I agree with his thinking, but he did raise an interesting concern that I think is fascinating. While he was living in Paris during the Nazi occupation, he became part of the resistance movement, began to publish an illegal paper called Combat. He wrote letters to a German friend, four of them as a matter of fact, explaining why resistance was necessary. And in his novel, which came out after the war, was called The Plague. And it was talking about this plague in this one community. It was taken after kind of a plague in the Middle Ages. But in his mind, it was really an allegory of the Nazis and their, they were like a plague in Europe. And so one of his concerns was that after such a time, after the occupation in Europe, people would acknowledge, yeah, it was a very difficult time, but soon life returned to normal without really addressing the issue of evil and the lessons that needed to be gleaned from it. And that is often true in our lives. Will we really learn from this time of COVID? What is God trying to say to us in a time where life has been put on hold in so many ways? And will we learn the lessons that were really intended? And I think as we take a look this morning of Luke's uh, gospel rendition of, of the resurrection of Jesus, we're going to find out that these early disciples are much like us. And they're dealing with a change that happened in their life. And I want us to take a look at that change that should be happening in our lives as well. Can we, like the early disciples, experience a profound new beginning? How many would say, you know, I'm really open to new beginnings. I'm really open to God creating a new trajectory in my future. And I think the resurrection is designed to be a new beginning in our life. So let's take a look. Jesus had told them uh, coming up to his crucifixion that he was going to suffer and die. And on Friday night, I tried to bring it out, and I'll repeat it here. It didn't register. And how many know that when you and I have a certain preconceived understanding of life, when you end up coming up against stuff that doesn't compute, you have a hard time filtering in the information. So even though Jesus had forewarned them what was about to happen, they never got it. As a matter of fact, last Sunday I talked about their expectation of what Jesus was doing going into the city, and what Jesus was actually seeing was about to happen was two different things, and they weren't ready for what was about to occur. And then we take a look here that Jesus had now been crucified. He had risen, and he had even, you know, the angels had said to the women, you know, go meet Jesus in Galilee. And so that's what they do. And in John's gospel, we read afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, and it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Ditmus, Nathaniel from Canaan in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Peter told them. And he said, they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Now, I know commentators are divided over what's happening here. You know, some of these commentators actually think that uh, this was a, an abandonment of their mission. We'll see that in a minute. 
But others are just thinking, it's no big thing, they're just going fishing. But how many know that when the Bible includes something, there's always something, there's always a reason for it? I mean, why would they just say, yeah, these guys went fishing? No, I think there's more going on, and I agree with D.A. Carson. He suggests something in between the states that there's a level of significance in the fact that they were actually coming to terms with what the resurrection meant for their life. You know, it, you know, there, you know. There's one thing to you know to have Jesus appear to you. It's another thing to know what does this mean for my future. That's a whole big step, and I think that's what they were trying to address. So here Carson goes on to say, but if Peter and his friends had neither apostatized, you know, fallen away, or sunk into despair, this fishing expedition and the dialogue that ensues do not read like the lives of men on a spirit-empowered mission. In other words, they seem to be distracted. It's impossible to imagine any of this taking place in Acts after Pentecost. You know, there you see the power of the Spirit in Peter's life. There was an eagerness for the risen Jesus, still strangely, haltingly, as the reality of Jesus' resurrection is still setting in. In other words, the the scope of what's going on here hasn't filtered into their thinking yet. But most emphatically, this is not the portrait of believers who have received the promise of the paraclete or the Holy Spirit. There is neither the joy or the assurance nor the mention of the sense of mission and the spirit of unity that characterized the church, which was freshly endowed with the promised spirit. Although there is evidence that the nighttime was considered best for fishing on Galilee, one wonders if the evangelist is still not employing one of his favorite symbols. They are still coming to grips with the resurrection, but still have not learned the profound truth that apart from Christ, they can do nothing. And so that night, they caught nothing. Now, how many know that John is probably alluding to an event that happened earlier in their lives? Remember the story? Luke tells it earlier in chapter 5. You know, Peter had been fishing with his partner, his brother, Andrew, and they had toiled all night and caught nothing. And Jesus is on the shore, and they had just been introduced to him and had been listening to him and were, you know, coming to terms like, who is this person? And Jesus says to Peter, hey, by the way, throw your net on the other side of the boat. Now, I can just imagine Peter, this experienced fisherman, thinking to himself, what does a carpenter going to tell me about fishing, right? I know what I'm doing. But to humor him, he threw the net on the other side, and pretty soon there was a huge catch of fish so that their partners in business, James and uh, John, who had another boat, came over to help them pull that haul of fish on the, onto the beach. It was just an amazing haul. Peter is so overwhelmed by his experience that he recognized something is happening here. And he says, I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. In other words, I recognize, you know, uh, I, I, I have a lot to learn. It, there's, a, there's a humbling in Peter's life at that moment. And we start picking up the story that Peter really begins to intently follow Jesus. But now we have kind of another uh, Element. The same thing happens again here later after Jesus' post-resurrection experience. You know, Peter's fishing again. Uh, what happens? They haven't caught anything all night. And now all of a sudden, you know, again, Jesus tells them to throw the net on the other side. And when they have that ne- next big haul of fish, Peter immediately hears his, uh, John say, it's the Lord. Peter jumps out of the boat, you know. It's really a powerful story. Now, why am I saying all of this? Because I believe that there's turning points in our lives. There are moments that alter our our future. 
decisions that we make that move us in a certain direction. And I want to take a look at three post-resurrection appearances that are designed to impact us today. Because, you know, we could sit down and talk about what happened in history. How many think that's important, what happened in history? Of course it is. I mean, Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. We'd still be in our sins. We wouldn't have no future. That's important. But I want to talk about how does that impact us now? You know, that happened a long time ago. So what difference does it make now in this moment that we're focusing in on the resurrection of Jesus? How does that impact me today? That's what I want to look at. And I think there are three things we need to be reminded of which I think will impact our future. And the first one is the reality of the resurrection. We need to remember that the early disciples were shattered by the crucifixion. Everything that they had believed seemed to have come to an end. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They had an expectation the Messiah would come and overthrow the Romans. There was not anyone to that point that had believed that the Messiah would have to suffer, die, and then be raised from the dead. They had no conception of this. That was not in the first century Jewish messianic expectation. It wasn't there. And so when Jesus was crucified, their world crashed. It was shattered. They had followed him for three and a half years. They had given up everything to follow Jesus, and now their life had come to an end. There was a dark cloud hanging over them. They were shattered. I want you to get that in your mind. And yet Luke tells us the amazing developments on that first Sunday morning after the crucifixion. So you have the Friday, Jesus is hanging from the cross. Then Saturday, he's in the tomb. On Sunday morning, because the Saturday is a Sabbath, on the Sunday morning, the women now are moving towards the tomb. It says on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Now there's no question in their minds, these women, that Jesus was dead. I want you to really understand this. They had been at the cross. The Bible says the women there were weeping at the cross. They had seen what had happened. And John tells us in chapter 19 and verse 31, now it was the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. And the next day was to be a special Sabbath. And because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Now, why would they do that? Because when you're crucified, what they do is they crucify you, and then they have a little seat. And in the great pain, you would rise back up to catch your breath. Because if your body sunk down, eventually you'd be a fist, you know, you'd choke to death. And so that was a terrible thing. And sometimes people would hang on a cross three, four, five days. Could you imagine the extreme suffering that these people were enduring? And they did that on purpose to show people, don't mess with us. Don't, you know, don't break the law. Otherwise, you're going to go through this kind of suffering. But now they wanted to hasten their death. How do you do that? You break their legs so they can't rise up and breathe, and they die very quickly. And so we read the next verse. The soldiers therefore came and they broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the others. But when they got to Jesus, they found that he was already dead and they did not break his legs. How many know when you got people who are executioners, they know when people are dead or not? And the Bible says to really get it in our minds that Jesus had died. It says this, instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing flow, a flow of blood and water, which was to tell us he was dead. Now, you know, so often you get all of these weird theories about Jesus on the cross that he never really died. He just kind of swooned, and then when they put him in the tomb, he kind of resuscitated. Let me tell you something. 
when you read the scriptures, the gospel writers are making it very clear to us that Jesus died on the cross. The gospel is that Jesus Christ came and died. And these women believed that he was dead. As a matter of fact, we keep reading later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night, and Nicodemus had brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. So now they, it, it says here they were taking Jesus' body, the two of them, they wrapped it with spices in strips of linen. This was accordance with Jewish burial customs. How many are understanding that John is trying to tell us that Jesus had died? Does everybody see it? He is dead. You know, you're not wrapping somebody up with 75 pounds of spices with linen and laying them in a tomb if you think he's still living. There's everything about Jesus. He was brutally scourged. He was beaten completely. He could hardly carry the cross. He died before the other two thieves, and his legs didn't need to be broken because he was already dead. So the Bible leaves us no doubt that Jesus died. Now, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb. Now, I want to just say that. I wanna, this really struck me as I was looking at this. You know, you get these other theories that, you know, people didn't know where the tomb was. Come on, guys. At a place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in that garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. In other words, they took the body down from the cross. It was already near the tomb, and they just put the body in the tomb. Why is that important? Because everybody knew where the tomb was. Nobody got lost looking for it. It was right there where he was crucified. That's basically what John is telling us. And because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby, and the tomb was where? Nearby. nearby. Thank you. They laid Jesus there. And then they eventually, in Matthew's gospel, they set a Roman guard over it. They put a seal there, all those kinds of things. Now, that whole next day is the Sabbath. That's a Saturday. Nothing's happening. Nobody's doing it. It's a day of rest. But the very next day, the women decided... That was hastily done on Friday afternoon. So we're going to come here and continue the preparation of his dead body. But they had a problem because as they were walking, they were thinking about one thing. There was a big stone that was put in place. How was that stone going to be moved? We don't have the strength to move that stone away from the mouth of that cave. That's what was on their mind. Mark says it that way in chapter 6, verse 13. They said to themselves, who will roam the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? So let me ask you a question. Were they anticipating when they went to that tomb that Jesus was alive? Of course not. They were so fixed in their mind that he was dead and they were coming to help prepare his burial. And then it says, and then they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, what now what's their focus? Where did he go? Where's the body? You know, that's how their minds were working. Then verse 4, and while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. Now, why does Luke describe their clothing? Because he wants us, the readers, to know that these were not normal people. These were angels, you know, they were supernatural beings. Now, how many know that if you and I would have an encounter with an angel, it would probably have an impact on us? And it certainly did these women because in the very next verse, in their fright, 
Did anybody think that if you ran into a supernatural being, you might be a little scared? That's a normal response. They were frightened. And they bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? That's an interesting question. I mean, that's what they were looking for. They were looking for a dead body, and they said, no, there's no dead body here. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Now he said, Now they say this message to them. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. And it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. So these, these ladies had forgotten what Jesus had said. By the way, has anybody in this room ever forgotten something that someone has said to you? And what I'm noticing, and Patty likes to tease me, because once in a while I'll tell a story, and she'll say, you weren't even there. It's my story. You know, I'm, I've, I've hijacked her story, you know? You know, as if it's my story, like I was there. You know, because over time, if you hear a story long enough, you know, you start hearing and you add, you know, and you don't mean to do this, but everyone in this room, if you listen to your, you know, if we could go back in time and as you're telling the story, we could see the actual re- event of the story, there would be shades of differences because we forget. We all have forgetters in this room. How many know you have a forgetter? And it's easy to forget, so we have to be reminded. And so they were reminding them of what Jesus had said. Why was it hard for them to remember the words of Jesus? Because what he was telling them did not fit in their preconception of what was about to happen. It's really hard to receive information when you don't buy it. It's really hard to receive information when you don't agree with that information, when you've never heard that information before, you've never seen the scriptures that way before. You were taught all of your life a certain way, Now all of a sudden, Jesus is re-straightening out your theology, it's hard to pick up on it. These guys never got it. Not only did the women not get it, even the disciples didn't get it. I would argue that no first century Jews saw the Messiah as suffering, dying, and being raised again. Not one of them saw that. So it didn't compute in their minds. The Son of Man, they said, must be delivered up to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. You know, now it's making sense, you see, because there's nobody, there's angels, they're telling him he's risen, you know, everything is starting to compute now. All of a sudden they go, yeah, I remember him telling us that. Yeah, is that what's going on here? Yep, that's what's going on here. Jesus is alive. He told you he was going to rise from the dead. Wow, on the third day. Yeah, on the third day. This is amazing. You know, actually, what we're going to discover in the resurrection stories is, uh, well, first of all, these these women came back from the tomb. Now, how many know they were pretty excited? Because they had these angelic visitation. They were told that Jesus was alive. They raced back to tell the disciples in the upper room and all the others, the 11 and all the others. So there was more than just 11 there. But they didn't believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Now, you see, they're stuck where they were. They're back in their minds. They can't, they just does not register. By the way, if you were trying to, you know, sell Christianity in the first century, you probably wouldn't have women come and tell you the story because they were not credible witnesses in a court of law. They were not considered valid witnesses. Isn't that something? So if you're going to make this up, you would probably not make the first people to tell you the good news, women. And that just gives you the depth of credibility of the story because these women were the first ones and they went and told the other apostles and it didn't register. They said their words seemed like nonsense to them. 
And you're going to see that these guys are going to struggle. I like what Daryl Bach says. It takes repeated appearances to convince the disciples that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They are just as unprepared for this event as if we would have been. The resurrection was not created by the church. I've heard this argument. See, people are saying that today. Oh, yeah, yeah, the, the church created this whole story. The resurrection was not created by the church. Rather, the church was created by the resurrection. Amen. You see, there was an amazing event that changed people's lives who were willing to give their lives for it. You say, why would they do that? So they'd have fame and immortality? No, they didn't do it that for that reason. They were people that had this amazing experience with Jesus. You know, they were the ones that saw these incredible miracles, and they also experienced the resurrection, and they were willing to give up their lives to communicate this message. But let me move on to the second thing we need to be reminded, and that's the prophecies regarding the mission of the Messiah. And so we pick up the story of two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. He's appearing to these two disciples, and they're trying to wrap their heads around what had happened that morning. In verse 13, it says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Not very far, seven miles. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Actually, that word, uh, talking with each other there, uh, it says, and as they talked and discussed, that word discussed is a very intense Greek word. It means they were, it was with intensity. They were probably debating a little bit, okay? And uh, Jesus himself comes up and walks along with them. How many, how many love this story? It's just such a great story. They're walking along, debating what's, what's been going down, and Jesus walks up to them, and it says, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, part of the problem, a number of reasons, first of all, God somehow made it so they couldn't figure out who it was. But do you know when someone's dead, it's hard to believe they're alive? I'll just tell you that right now. Your, your mind has a hard time computing what you're seeing. You know, we've all had these experiences where, you know, a magician does something and you're looking at it and your mind is being fooled by what you're seeing. We've all had those experiences. Well, these guys are not computing that this is Jesus. And so Jesus comes along, and he starts walking with them, and they're totally blinded to this truth. And I think Luke is using a theological device to teach us an important truth. And cleverly, Ford says, we cannot see the risen Christ, although he's walking with us, unless he wills to disclose himself. And isn't that the truth that, you know, even though Jesus is in the world right now, a lot of people can't see it. They don't get it. They just, it, it's not computing for them. It's not registering for them. As a matter of fact, uh, Paul the Apostle makes this amazing declaration in the, in the uh, letter to the Colossians. He said, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, or the one who's preeminent over all creation. For in him, Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, or authority, all things have been created through him, and for him. I want to just say this. You know, sometimes as human beings, we think the world is for us. This was all designed for our pleasure. Can I just say the world was created for God's pleasure, including you and I. And then it says, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. So God has a purpose, and until we figure out that it's not, we're not at the center of the universe, we're actually uh, people that are part of God's center. 
Jesus is at the center of the universe. He's holding everything together. And I want to just encourage us with that thought. He's the one that sustains our lives. He's the one that's holding this world together, even though we're in the middle of crisis in our personal lives. Or we could be crisis with COVID or crisis with this or that. I want to declare to you today, God is holding the whole world together. As a matter of fact, I love that old spiritual that says he holds the whole world in his hands. You know, isn't that great? I love that song. You know, anyways, maybe some of you have heard it. It's good. He's got the whole world in his hands. And he does. He's controlling our world. We can relax a little bit. I think we get so uptight. We get into a knot. We're so frustrated. We're so apprehensive. We're so discouraged. We're so overwhelmed. You know, isn't it great when you're trusting God and you can look to God and say, you got it all under control. You know, this, this nut house that I'm looking at right now, it's all under your control. And I'm happy. You're, you can handle it. Well, then Jesus walks up and he says to them, hey, what are you guys discussing? What are you talking about? What are you arguing over? What's the debate here? And they stood still and their faces were downcast. You could see the grief and the, you know, they were, you know, wondering, you know, what to say. And they were despairing. I mean, these guys were followers of Jesus. It wasn't just 11 there, it says in that room. It was more. And these guys were followers of Jesus. They had given up everything. They were headed home. They were disillusioned. The Messiah had not, you know, hadn't materialized. They hadn't kicked out the Romans. He was, Jesus was dead. What else can we talk about? I mean, this was really bad. We, and then, he, then they said this. One of them named Cleopas asked him, hey, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? I mean, who are you? Are you out of touch with reality, buddy? I mean, that's the whole news of the whole city, right? What things he said? Oh, don't you love Jesus? Yeah, what's up? You know? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. And they came and told us they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. You can see the conversation. They're like, wow, what's going on? It's not computing. They're kind of going through all this stuff in their hearts and minds. And they said then, and then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Wow. Jesus listening to all this. They're telling Jesus what's the, sco- what's, what's the scoop here. And they're totally confused. And so Jesus now begins to explain to them, I love this. He starts out with a little rebuke. He said to them, how foolish you are and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, remember, you've been, some of you in the congregation, I've been preaching through Proverbs. What happens when you're called a fool? That's not a good term. That means you're not a believer. He's basically saying, you guys are acting without the fear of God in your hearts. You're not acting like you really believe what God's word says. He says, you know, he's kind of chiding them. He says, man, are you guys ever slow on the uptake? Don't you believe what the prophets say? And then they get the the, the greatest Bible lesson of all time. How many says, I'm going to sign up for this class? I'm walking on the road to Demaeus, and the ultimate master teacher comes along. It's Jesus himself. He's going to explain to us the Old Testament. How many say, I'm signing up for that class? I'm, I'm in on this one. He starts taking them through the scriptures. He says, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning from Moses, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. 
What an amazing journey, traveling with Jesus, having the scriptures unpacked for you. Man, was that ever exciting. And then, verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was still going further. And then they said, oh, Jesus, you got to, he didn't say Jesus, but they just said, they strongly urged him. They said, stay with us. It's nearly evening. The day's almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and began to give it to them. How many know this is kind of what Jesus does? Takes bread, breaks it, starts giving thanks, you know. These guys, now it says, then their eyes were opened. Wow. And they recognized him. They said, oh, my goodness, it's Jesus. As soon as they saw that, he disappeared. <laughs> and they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They said, wasn't that amazing? Didn't you, weren't you just on fire? Wasn't it so exciting as he's explaining the Bible, just like everything became real to us, and then we saw Jesus. And then he's gone. Now, how many know that if you have this kind of an experience, you're not going to bed? <laughs> These guys were so excited. They had just walked seven miles with the ultimate uh, seminary class of all time. And so they said, they, they got up. They returned at once. To, they, they must have ran back to Jerusalem. They were so excited. Folks, when you and I have an encounter with God, it does something inside of you. You cannot sit still any longer. Once you've experienced this message for yourself, you got to tell somebody. Amen. And these guys had to go back and tell their buddies, hey, listen, we just saw Jesus. We just experienced Jesus. We get it now. We finally get it. He was telling us all along, but it wasn't registering, but we get it now. He explained the entire Bible. He fulfilled the scriptures. We have a new understanding. We have a new future. And then they, got, they found the 11 and those with them that were assembled together. And then it says, it's true. The Lord has risen. And has appeared to Simon. Of course, he had appeared to Simon Peter. Peter told the other guys too, but they didn't believe him. How many are getting a sense that it's really hard for people to believe? Anybody get a sense that? It's really difficult. There's a lot of skepticism here. And then the two of them told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Wow. Let me move on to the third thing we need to be reminded of. It's implication for our lives. How does the resurrection touch me? Well, let's take a look at what happens. In this last point, we see that this has significant imp implications, not only for their lives, but for our lives. Jesus has a commission for them to embrace and the need for them to be empowered to do it. Daryl Bach says, Thus the resurrection serves as the basis for our being able to receive the many blessings of grace that God gives his children. No resurrection, no forgiveness of sins. No resurrection, no Holy Spirit. No resurrection, no eternal life. How many are happy about the resurrection? These are all nice things. I would say no resurrection, no future. No future commissioning. No sense of mission and purpose in life. But here, let's pick up Luke's third account. Jesus is now, while these guys are busy telling them they've just seen Jesus, you know what Jesus does? He shows up. This really freaks these guys out. Look what it says. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. It's a good thing he said, peace be with you, because they were scared out of their minds. It says they were startled. You know, every once in a while, you ever get startled? You know, kind of frightened. And were frightened. You know what they thought? They were seeing a ghost. 
Because let's face it, they, had, they knew Jesus was dead. They had seen him crucified. They, they, their, their brains could not compute that who they were looking at was Jesus. They thought, that's got to be his ghost or something. I mean, this, it's just not computing for their minds. And he says to them, why are you guys so troubled? And why do, you, why do doubts rise up in your minds? Hey, take a look at my hands and feet. It's I myself. Hey, touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. He said, hey, take a hold of me. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm physical here, guys. I rose again bodily from the grave. It's not, you know, we got all kinds of weird teaching, like Jesus rose spiritually. No, no, he rose bodily from the grave. Then it says, when he had said this, he showed him his hands and feet, and while they still did not believe it, but now it's because of joy and amazement, he said, hey, oh, by the way, do you have anything to eat? How many know when you sit down and start eating with people, start realizing, oh, yeah, it's a real body. And so they handed him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. And he said to them, this is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Bible lesson number two. Jesus is teaching once through, again. How about those guys from the road to Emmaus? They go, we heard this before. <laughs> Wait till these guys hear this stuff. This is going to be awesome. You know, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. What's the problem for most of us? We have a closed mind. What's the problem in our culture about Christ today? Closed-mindedness. How many, when you're sharing your faith, how many people are really open-minded? A lot of people you're talking to, closed-minded. They can't get it. They don't see it. Their, their minds have already been made up. They have a predisposition towards unbelief. It takes a lot to get through to people. You know what? Why, why are we hearing this story? Because we're starting to see that these guys are just like us guys. We have a lot of skepticism and doubt in our lives, and it takes a lot to get through to us that this really happened. We have a hard time believing that the God who created the entire universe could actually rise from the dead. Why do we have a problem with that? Or God could do these amazing miracles. You see, we struggle with those kinds of things, and we can see that they certainly did. But then the question is, so what were the implications of all of this? Well, let's take a look. And he told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you to, uh, what my Father has promised. This is the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So what's he, what's he saying to them? He's simply telling them, you need to have the Spirit of God empower you in order to facilitate the ability to communicate. You can't just do this in your own strength. You need God's Spirit, you know? And what, what, what are we supposed to realize? What's the implication, I guess, of what I'm trying to ask? What, what does it mean for you and for me today, this historical event? Well, we can celebrate it. It's produced beautiful things in our life. We've experienced forgiveness. We've experienced hope. We've experienced the future. We've experienced joy. We've experienced, you know, God's grace in our lives. These are wonderful things. But he also has an implication of what we should be doing. What should we be doing? Well, he tells the church, go and make disciples. Now, I'm going to ask a question here as we close the service. And it's really a simple question. What happens tonight if Jesus came to your room and uh, you woke up and there was Jesus standing in your bedroom. And he said, I want to talk to you. And you're standing there looking. How many think that might be a little intense? 
Anybody here might think that might be a little intense moment. Jesus is in your bedroom and he says, I've got a job for you to do now. I want you to go and tell your neighbor that I'm alive. I want you, now you, would, you, would you start arguing with Jesus? Well, sorry, Jesus. I, you know, my neighbor's kind of bullheaded. I don't think he's interested, you know, blah, 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 blah. I think you and I would be so overwhelmed with that experience that we would be going, I'm going next door to tell my neighbor. You know, hopefully we'd wait till he's up, you know. <laughs> but we would really be motivated. How many think we might be just a little motivated to go tell someone? You know, wouldn't we be motivated? Can you see that? So why do we have to have Jesus showing up at night to tell us to do that? He's already told us in his word. And sometimes it takes something dramatic to get us moving. But there's a lot of lethargy in the church. There's a lot of apathy in the church. You know, pre, pre-COVID, most of the church in North America was just busy playing, having a good time, enjoying life, traveling, doing this, doing that. You know what? We, we lacked a real sense of purpose and passion and commitment to making disciples. Come on now. And you know why we were like that? Because we, first of all, we needed a new encounter with Christ. And we needed the power of the Holy Spirit to give us the moral courage to go do it. So we're going to stand this morning as we close the service. I believe that you and I need a fresh encounter. How many can see that? If we had a fresh encounter today, if the Holy Spirit would come upon us and Christ would become more real to us, I can tell you something. You would want to be telling people. I wouldn't have to be asking you. You'd be telling me, I'm going. I'm gone. I'm out of here. I got to do this. Because you see, it's so real to us. You know, the people who are the, have the greatest impact on people are the people who have been greatly impacted. My argument is simply, remember the time Jesus shows up at the Pharisee's house and the woman washes his feet with her hair, with her tears, and he doesn't even bother to do that. Jesus tells that little parable of of the person who's been forgiven much is going to love much. I'm saying the ones who have really experienced the power of God's transforming love in their heart are probably going to share that message to other people far more zealously than a person who has had, you know, maybe we just grew up in the church, it's been good, my family's there, we love God, but we don't see the real value of it. But I'll tell you something. When I see the brokenness in so many people's lives, maybe because I grew up in it, number two, I've been a pastor, I hear it all the time. The despair, the hopelessness, the brokenness, all of those things, and I say to myself, we should be so motivated. We have a message that will bring help and wholeness and healing and grace. You go, yeah, but pastor, I try, and there's, there's such a resistance. I want you to know there was a resistance for Jesus even getting through to his own disciples. But when you and I have the power of the living Christ living inside of us, we'll break through that. Because when you are passionate and excited, something inside of you, your spirit, the spirit of Christ comes out of you and, and, and penetrates into the lives of people. Yeah, they're going to still reject. Some of them will still reject it. I can't control outcomes. You can't control outcomes. But I'll tell you one thing I can control is my response, my, my going, and I'm not going to stop. As a matter of fact, what COVID is doing for me personally is making me realize we need to be more diligent than we've ever been before. We need to become more concerned about the condition of people because right now, can you think about it? 
People are now dying. People right now are confused. People right now are afraid. People right now are trying anything to stay alive. Come on now. But what they really need is Jesus. That's the real answer. Because, you know, there's a lack of peace, a lack of hope in many of their lives. Let's pray right now. How many say, you know, Pastor, I really feel I need a fresh encounter with the risen Jesus. I need a fresh encounter. I need a fresh outpouring of his spirit in my own soul. I need to have that encounter with the Holy Spirit. Because when I read what happened after the day of Pentecost, these guys weren't the same again. They were dynamic. There was a dynamic that came into their life. You know what that was? God's spirit. I know he's inside of us, but the Bible says stir up the spirit within you. I think we need a stirring of the Spirit. I, need we, I think we need God to work in our lives anew and afresh. Don't just leave the resurrection experience in the historical past. And don't just let it be something that you're enjoying and nobody else gets. We need to have a fresh encounter in our lives so that we bring it to others. So Lord, I just pray this morning that your Spirit would come in a fresh way in our lives. And Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know if we'll have a dream or... If, you know, some dynamic uh, spiritual experience will happen in our life. But I pray, Lord, that we will not remain the same. That we will be able to get past our skepticism, our doubt, our indifference, our apathy, Father. I just pray today that they would become a renewed heart, a passion, a deep sense of mission in our lives, that people's lives would be impacted because we are now obedient to the great mission of the church which is communicating the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection. And Lord, when we see what it's done for our lives, when we see the transformation and change it brings into people's lives, and I've seen it over and over again, I pray, Lord, we'll be more committed to it than ever before. So would you come today, Holy Spirit? Would you come and fill us anew and afresh? Would you give us eyes to see the society as you see it? Lord, help us to stop raining judgment on people. You didn't come into this world to condemn it. You came into this world to save it. So begin to help us see people with your eyes of compassion and understanding. And help us, Lord, to share this life-giving message of hope in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.